0: Welcome to the Real Estate Women's Podcast. Thanks for pulling up a chair to our roundtable discussion. Here, we'll teach you how you can create a stream of passive income through multifamily investing and we'll help you to shift your mindset so you can start living the life you really want to be living by design today. Hello,
1: guys. We're the Real Estate Women. I'm Tamara. I'm Crystal. And I'm Candy. And today,
2: welcome to the Passive Investing Podcast, and we are going to be talking about 1031 Exchanges, and who other than to bring in the 1031 Exchange information is Dugan Kelly for this episode.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome, Dugan. You're welcome. I'd like to introduce you, and uh, Dugan Kelly co-founded Kelly Clark PC with the mission to deliver big firm expertise and experience to the local community. Currently, Mr. Kelly provides syndication and security services for clients throughout the United States, assisting clients in all phases of their acquisition um, and the sale of commercial and residential property um, and different various real estate assets. So we'd like to get started and like talk about so what is a 1031 exchange?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me ladies. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I know I've chatted with Candace over the years about 1031 exchanges. It's something I'm very passionate about. Frankly, it's probably my favorite part of the tax code. How many of us can actually say that there's a part of the tax code that we actually like? I think 1031 uh, is a it's it's actually the Internal Revenue Code section 1031. That allows um, taxpayers, individuals or entities to essentially defer the taxes that they would owe on the profit that they uh, receive from the sale of real property. And they're able to defer the taxes on that by uh, going through this process, which is called a, a 1031 exchange process, where they basically sell a piece of property and they use a third party what the tax code calls a qualified intermediary, but they, they use that qualified intermediary to shelter those taxes so that Uncle Sam's not digging in their pocket to get those taxes, and they get the ability to purchase a new property with you, utilizing all of the profit uh, that they've obtained from the sale of the first property. So that's, in short, what uh, 1031 allows taxpayers to do, and there's very few, as you might imagine, there's very few portions of the tax code that actually allow you to not pay taxes. Yeah. They encourage you to not pay taxes. And it's not something shady or untoward or tawdry. It's something that the, that the government and the IRS has set up. And it's something that's been, um, obviously, for real estate investors, uh, something that every real estate investor needs to know about, in my opinion.
2: So when you talked to something you referred to um, in that wonderful explanation um, was real property so is that commercial property residential property can you touch on that um, term just a little bit for
3: us? Yeah Candace that's a great question so mm-hmm. so we used to back in the day I've been practicing for 23 years but back in the day we used to be able to swap business interests or like art so you could go from like the sale of a painting into like a purchase of a wow. car. And, and defer those taxes. Well, the government closed that uh, ability several years ago in 2017 or 2018, and they limited it only to real property interests. Now, the good news for real estate investors is when they say real property interests, it's a very broad definition. So you could theoretically be an owner of like a vacant piece of land somewhere in the Midwest and you want to buy a piece of a hotel in Georgia, right? And you can do that. You don't have to go from the same type of real property to the same type of real property on the repurchase. You can you can swap and, and mingle. So this, this whole concept of what actually falls into real property interest includes everything from vacant land, to uh, multifamily, to self-storage, to mobile home parks, to hospitality, to mixed use, to office, to medical, uh, and even like uh, oil and gas, theoretically, some uh, mineral interests in connection with real property. So anything that has to connect, anything that connects with actual dirt, uh, frankly, is what I tell uh, investors you can go from one type of dirt to another type of dirt or to the same type of dirt uh, but it uh, but it allows you lots of variety and creativity in how you intend to use your exchange wow
0: so
1: with that said so let's talk about so if you have that dirt that you want to go to the hotel so what's yeah. the setup process what's the to? i mean how do you do how do you go about doing this to take advantage yeah, so, of not having Uncle Sam in your cookie jar,
3: for- <laughs> exactly. That's a wonderful. That's a wonderful analogy, right? So the 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 reality is, many of us that are passive investors, right? How do we expand our networks or the possibility of opportunities? Well, we first 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 of all, we're going to educate ourselves. So listening to your podcast and being part of your tribe, uh, that's super important. I always start with that. Because being able to educate yourself and expand your horizons and connect with other like-minded individuals who are actually doing that, that's your highest level of success. You're going to achieve your highest level of success because if somebody, for instance, were to contact any one of you, you probably would be able to say, hey, I know of a potential opportunity for you to look at, to do your own due diligence, to theoretically think about. So that referral arrangement and meeting with people and and being a part of groups is how I I find that most people achieve success in being able to actually successfully do a 1031. And then there are other more formalistic groups out there. There are, are groups that uh, uh, focus in on um, what we call a DST, which is a, Del- a, D- a Delaware Statutory Trust. And they they're like a REIT style thing that they're constantly doing 1031s around the country. So if if you're more interested in that kind of like that Wall Street institutional feel and not the mom and pop or the kind of the, the direct personal relationship style of thing, then that style of investing might be helpful for you. And you can do that through 1031 exchanges. But in general... Tamara, the 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 people that will contact you or other people that are in the space, they will connect them with other operators, sponsors, syndicators. I use those terms interchangeably with one another. Mm -hmm. Those are just the people that are putting a deal or deals Mm -hmm. together. And then there's conversations that just take place to see how how that that potential investor might uh, be able to play in that particular opportunity that appeals to them.
2: Do you find that there is economically, and I know this varies from investor to investor, but what would be for a 1031 exchange economically with the cost involved, um, because you do need to get a CPA and and professionals involved like yourself for the minimum amount that you might be receiving from your your, um, sale of a
3: property or real
2: property. Uh, Is there like a dollar amount you can just kind of throw out there so people can kind of have a better understanding of that?
3: <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's a great question. So so those fees can wildly they can vary wildly differently depending on who the professional is, the professionals that are helping you um, mm-hmm. essentially along this process. But in general, you should plan somewhere in the neighborhood of thousands, not tens of thousands of dollars, but it could reach somewhere in the ten thousand or under um range, depending on the amount that you're placing, the type of investment opportunity that you're doing. And I would say that if you're a passive investor and you're thinking to yourself, is that really do I'm going to have to come out of my own pocket with extra out of out of equity cash, right? Like after Mm -hmm. tax dollars, am I going to have to pay that? I would say for the most part, you should have an expectation that you would not, but you should certainly ask those questions of whomever you're deciding to theoretically participate with in in an opportunity. Most sponsors, operators, syndicators, again, those terms are used interchangeably. The people that are putting that deal together, they're they're sensitive. They're sensitive to you, uh, 1031 investor, not having to come out of pocket with extra cash. So they're trying to fold into whatever equity you're participating with. The costs associated with that transaction, and that would include the CPA or the lawyer or even the fees that your qualified intermediary Mm -hmm. uh, would charge you. And they usually charge a flat fee associated with facilitating that safe harbor provision of the tax code to take possession of that profit and make sure that you're not going to be taxed on it and then help you redeploy that profit and your basis into the next deal uh, through typically a title company or a closing officer. But mm-hmm. all of those costs usually come out of the equity that you are contributing towards the purchase of what the IRS calls the undivided interest in real property. That just means that you're buying a slice or, uh, or a whole part of a new property. And those costs associated with that are typically reduced or deducted from the, the cash or equity that you're bringing to the table.
0: That makes sense. And now is there ever like, um, as far, let's, for example, say, uh, an investor has maybe a duplex that they want to, you know, move to a passive investment. They're over being active and they want to get kind of sell that and their thoughts are, okay, I want a 1031, this put it into a passive investment. Um, how, like what, as far as like the value of that property and the income that they will make versus what they have to invest, is there ever like, um, like if they're only going to have 150 grand of sale profit in there, is that worth it for them? Is there like a minimum, um, that you think is like, well, if it's less than 250, less than 100, it's kind of not worth going through all of that and you're better off kind of saying not this time, let's just pay the taxes. Or is like, what's that threshold that you typically recommend?
3: Yeah. So that's a, that's another great question, because we get asked that all the time. Like, well, will yeah. this I mean, maybe and the, the the interesting thing is most 1031 past investors um, kind of think to themselves, well, maybe I just don't have enough money. Right. Maybe I just don't have enough cash. Why would what I want to do be appealing to anybody else? Like, why would they allow me to play inside of their opportunity? And the reality is this is a multi trillion dollar a year industry. So it's not a small, uh, the the commercial real property, like the uh, property that you don't live at, it's not your primary residence, but property and all of those different types of property, that's a multi-trillion dollar a year uh, trading, meaning those properties being bought and sold. So there's lots of sponsors, operators, syndicators that are looking for 1031 parties. And so don't just assume that if you only have a hundred thousand or 50,000 or 150,000 or 200,000, that that's not going to be appealing to someone out there. Um, I would say there are different sponsors artificially have their own litmus tests. So I've, I have clients on the operator side where they'll say, Hey, I won't take anything less than a hundred thousand, or I won't I won't um, take anything less than a million or I won't take anything less than three million. Uh, Obviously, there's a wide difference between the operator who says, I'm only interested if you have three million dollars of 1031 exchange funds versus the operator who says, I'm I'm interested in anybody that has over one hundred thousand. So I would say it's just having a conversation with the people. And I don't think you need to feel. Uh, embarrassed, and I don't know why you would, but I know that that's a common feeling that most people think. They think almost like they're it's almost like shameful to have that conversation. Of like, I only have fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So if if you're in that situation and you still want, I would just encourage you have those conversations with those people mm-hmm. because don't just assume by virtue of the 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 resources that you have that nobody else will be interested because. I think 1031 people that have cash, that's a that's gold. That is that, that the people that have 1031, that's so, so important for sponsors, operators, syndicators, because think about it. You have a pressure and a, a different type of right. pressure than a retail investor who's coming with after tax dollars. Mm-hmm. You have to deploy that capital. If you don't deploy that capital within that time frame, mm-hmm. then you're going to get taxed on it. And so that those conversations are often much easier, in my opinion, historically, uh, regardless of the amount that you have to invest. So I'm, I'm a big believer that have the conversation, regardless of whether you think that the amount would be appealing to anybody or not.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, something you just mentioned was what the next question that I had for you, the timelines and the rules and kind of that nitty gritty how to's. Um, those are a lot of those are some of the nuances that sometimes people can just get so excited. Let me do a 1031 that they forget about all these rules. So can you touch a little bit on like the timelines and what you typically recommend for um someone wanting to do a 1031, like at what point should they do that? Should they already have a property in mind before they begin the process with those tight timelines? Or how do you recommend that? And if you could just elaborate a little bit on those rules, because yes. I know you so Absolutely. much more eloquently than I will. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Happy to. So there are some, just some easy rules that we all unfortunately have to play by. And these are very rigid rules. So Remember, when you're dealing with Uncle Sam, you're deferring tax, meaning you're not paying taxes on this. So you might imagine that the IRS is very strict about the rules that uh, allow you the opportunity to not pay taxes. So first and foremost, if you're somebody that owns a piece of commercial property, regardless of what type of property is, and you list that property for sale, um, and you're starting to think about, hey, I think I'm going to make some money on this, and I think that I don't want to pay taxes on this. How can I do? How can I shelter those taxes? That's the time that you should start to think about um, whether to do a 1031. And it's at that it's at that moment. So regardless of whether you actually have a a contract to sell that property that you're listing. I think it's okay to start having conversations with people about that. And it's okay to hire. So remember this you have to hire a qualified intermediary. So Uncle Sam says, we're going to allow you what we call safe harbor, meaning we don't have to pay taxes on that profit, but only if somebody else takes possession of that profit. Right. So these are individuals or more often entities that are set up out there. And anybody that has access to Google can Google fool around and find yourself a qualified intermediary. They will be that you will hire them. You won't have to pay them anything right now, but they will actually come inside once you have a, a contract for the sale of a piece of property. And they will take they will be kind of the escrow officer of that profit. So at the closing table on the sale of your property, that's going to result in that gain that you don't want to pay taxes on. You'll have a qualified intermediary that will have their escrow account already tied to that transaction such that you never take possession of the profit. Now, these are again, this is not shady. They're not going to race off to Mexico Mm -hmm. with your money. Don't don't be concerned about that. Hire, you know, have some conversations with somebody, some qualified intermediaries. You are going to have to trust somebody. You are going to sign an engagement agreement with that qualified intermediary. They're likely going to charge you a flat fee at closing and the redeployment. It'll be somewhere between five hundred to maybe a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred at the most that you are going to pay a flat fee, and you are not going to pay that up front typically. Uh, And then what happens is once you close on that property and your money the profit gets taken into the escrow account for the qualified intermediary that starts this rigid timeline that the IRS kind of imposes upon uh, 1031 parties and you have 45 days so 45 days from closing on the sale of your property to identify other potential replacement properties and most passive investors identify three potential replacement properties. So you're going to want to think about three potential. That doesn't mean that you have to split up your uh, profit into one third, uh, into each of those three. You can choose one, you could choose two, you could choose all three. And you have the ability to move that uh, money around inside of that. But that 45-day time frame is when you identify those potential replacement properties. So you can't, after 45 days, you can't change the property designation. So you want to be sure that you're you're solid on those 45 days. And then you have to close, meaning you have to redeploy the capital for your purchase, either your purchase of 100% of one of those three properties or a slice of one of the three properties within 180 days from day one. So 45 days designation, closing within 180 days uh, in that redeployment. And I've only seen uh, the IRS push pause on those rigid timelines one time in my life, and that was during COVID. So during COVID, they pushed pause for maybe like two weeks, like two weeks or a month, I, I forget. But it was such a it was such a a unique situation, obviously, um, unprecedented. Uh, And then they fired it back up again and they said, hey, the timeline's continuing again. So that that tolling period that we gave you only inside of that one period for COVID, we're no longer going to do. So if you're a passive investor, remember, you just have to remember 45. I remember for the day I remember hiring a qualified intermediary. Don't hire the qualified intermediary on the day of closing. So so engage and hire them before you sell. Uh, Make sure that they're involved with your title company or your escrow officer. 45 days to designate up to three properties and then 180 days to to redeploy that capital. And then the last rule is, the purchase price of the property that you're buying mm-hmm. has to be equal to or greater than the prop pro- than the price that you uh, sold the property that you sold. So remember, it has to be equal to or greater because remember this is an exchange, right? So the right. the key that the the key is in the name, right? It has to be an exchange of like kind, meaning we're we're exchanging into that. So that's the. Those are kind of the easy rules, I think, for most uh, passive investors that they have to think about.
2: So, didn't you touched on the the deadline of 180 days. So let's say um, I I have a 1031, I've identified the property, um, the money sitting in escrow ready to go when it closes, and something funny happens and the closing is postponed for another two weeks and I'm at 179 days. Does that mean that I just lost my ten thirty one?
3: Possibly. So remember, so so remember the ten thirty one guidelines are uh, their guidelines, and it's a safe harbor. So that re- what means is when your CPA is filling out your 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 tax return on an annual basis, and they inform the IRS that you engaged in a tax free exchange, uh. That notifies the IRS, and if you're one of those unluck- unlucky people that they decide to do a, an audit on, they will look at the time frame in connection with that to see if you strictly complied with their rules and regulations. And if, if for whatever reason you fall outside or you or you didn't comply with the timeline, then potentially the IRS has the ability to avoid. Uh, your exchange or disavow Mm -hmm. the taxable benefits afforded to you and then accelerate that that date for when you would have had to pay those taxes. So um, the the simple answer is there's not somebody that's examining each and every uh, 1031 exchange and saying yes or no yes or no we used to long ago send in letters to the IRS asking for uh, a stamp of approval or what we used to call a private letter ruling from the IRS approving of the 1031 exchange. Well, the IRS, the good folks in Washington, they became inundated with hundreds of thousands of these types of requests. And they were like, we can't, we can't do this anymore. And frankly, the timeline was so long that it would take, it would take often six months or more sometimes for the IRS just to dig through the queue to find your request and respond to it. And so, as you might imagine, if you're a passive investor, the six months waiting for six months potentially or even longer or standing in line, uh, nobody really does that anymore. Um, so. We have a set of guidelines that the IRS says, these are the safe harbor uh, provisions and guidelines. We want you to follow these. And if we audit you and we find that you did not, then Uncle Sam, guess what? He will be digging into your pocket to try to get some taxes from you in connection with that opportunity because you didn't actually fulfill all the requirements that were set forth. But that's kind of how that works. So I don't want people to think that The IRS is roaming the streets and there are IRS cop cars looking to to get you. That's not how it works. It's kind of like you're availing yourself of the tax code provisions. They want you to follow the rules. We want you to follow the rules. And if you do and somebody audits you, you're going to be fine. But if you don't, and you get it. <laughs> we'll say we'll say a quiet prayer for you, and we'll we'll try to help wherever we can. But uh, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be confident that you would survive uh, that audit. And that uh, and Uncle Sam will obviously, as Tamara said, he'll be digging into your cookie jar to get uh, a few shekels for uh, taxes in connection with that opportunity. <laughs>
2: So, uh, so I'm hearing a lot of, yeah, go ahead.
1: I think you, you might know, be asked, asking the, may, the same question, maybe, but um, so I want just to go back. So you about the dollar amount. So yeah. you said it's about the purchase purchase price or the sales price. What about that initial investment? Does it have to match? Does it have, so say you invested 50,000 over here, but you have a total of a hundred how does that work?
3: Yeah, so you would want to find a property. So so, so you would find wanna find a property theoretically that the property would be worth at least a hundred thousand dollars. So you're you're replacing, you're basically doing a tax free exchange in connection with that. So remember, most people that participate in a ten thirty one exchange with other people, so like with other right. sponsors, operators, syndicators. Sure. The purchase right. price associated with those opportunities in my experience over the last 20, 23 years is is largely much larger than right. the than the property that they're selling. So most people that are selling are uh, single women, single men, husbands and wives or spouses, significant others that own a piece of real property and uh, they want to exchange up into a lar- into a better asset class different part of the country, potentially. Sure. And so we don't usually run into any, we don't re- usually run into problems about uh, whether the replacement property meets the the criteria for equal to or greater than the the property that you just sold. I, I, well, it my, could happen.
1: Was, my question was surrounding a little more about the, the dollar amount that you invested. Does it, does it have anything to do with that? Or is it strictly about the sales price?
3: It's strictly about the sale. It's strictly about the okay. sales
1: price.
2: So, um, quick question. So, with the sales price, yeah. Um, let's say I, I go into a deal that's much larger. Say I had a hundred thousand. It was a ten thirty one. It went into a syndication. Okay. So, then that property, let's say. That property is a, a, I'm part of a syndication that's a $12 million deal. But right. after that property sells, I want to continue to roll my 1031 and the profits proceeds from that into another right. 1031. Right. Do I have to meet the sale price of the new property or is it from where the 1031 originated
3: from? Yeah. So. So that's a great question. So often, when you own a piece of property with what what the IRS calls other co owners, co owners of undivided interests in real property, so you went from a property that you owned independently, either by yourself, with your spouse, your significant other, you own that property totally uh, in that way, and now you've you've had conversations with somebody else, and they said, "Hey, I have an opportunity to to own a Uh, an apartment building. If you would like to redeploy your capital into our apartment building, we're going to value the cash that you're bringing to the table or the cash and debt to the table. And it will be worth, let's say it's 5% undivided interest in that real property. So, and that 5% is equal to X number of dollars of value of that property. So, when you redeploy at exit. And let's say you own that for two more, two years. And thankfully your basis in the deal or your profits increase such that now you not only want to defer the taxable gains from the first sale into the apartment building, you want to defer the taxable gains from the sale of the the profits that you've obtained now from the apartment building and you want like Candace says, you want to go forward into another uh, exchange. And so you're going to value essentially what that the value of that property was that was equating to that 5% that goes forward. And that's what it'll be, not on the full 100% of that property because you don't own 100% of the property. and And those owners, those multiple owners in that apartment building, Those are what we call tenants in common. They're just Uh all co-owners of the same piece of real property. And they all own what we, what the IRS calls undivided interests in real property undivided just means that they have a slice of the property. And it's not like you just say, Hey, this one apartment unit 202, that's the only one that you own. No, you actually own 5% of the whole apartment complex. So when you go forward into your exchange, You're going to be looking for a replacement that will be a like-kind exchange associated with the value of that 5% that you obtained at closing on your redeployment of capital.
2: And redeployment of that capital, it's like starting the 1031 exchange process all over again, like you just started with your original sale.
3: Yeah, totally. It just starts the process all over again. You don't have to do the same thing that all the other co-owners are doing, like they may say, hey... We've now, we want to go from an apartment building into a self-storage or into a mobile home park. And so they're, they're going into this and they say, Hey, do you want to come along with us? And you can say, no, I don't. I want to go. I have another opportunity to buy a, 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 a condo in Hawaii, and I want to take my money and I want to roll it into that condo in Hawaii. And so I can Airbnb that or whatever that you can make those decisions on that. And I would say the, the good thing about 1031, and I've had clients that have done this for generations, so they've they've been so self-controlled, so disciplined that each time they don't touch the, the money, they keep using the qualified intermediary and they keep going to another exchange, another exchange, another exchange, such that when they pass away, that their heir or their heirs inherit what the IRS calls a step-up in basis. That means that all of the taxable, remember all those that taxes that we keep kicking down the, the road and we keep preventing Uncle Sam from digging his hand into our pocket to pull out the taxes, that is wiped away. Now, remember, 1031 in general is tax deferral. So I get very concerned. I want to make sure that people understand this, that, that if you are repetitive, and you continue to do this, do this, do this, do this, such that you've never touched the, the, the money and you pass away. Your hair, your heirs or heir will inherit a what the IRS calls a step up in basis. That means that their value gets sucked up up to here. So now there's no taxable gain associated with that. And everything else before your passing gets wiped away, which is a, an amazing thing. Think about it. I mean, if if you're truly that self-discipline this truly is a an ability for you to never have to pay taxes or your family to never have to pay taxes on that and the tax bill never comes due but it really is only in that isolated situation otherwise what Candace is is basically saying is hey you can continue to do this as many times as you want uh, but if you take possession of the money at some point regardless of the reason right because Life happens, right? Um, uh, death, college education, vacations, vacation home, uh, divorce, sickness—all of things that happen to as a as a human being may happen to you. And if you make the conscious decision to say, "You know what? The only place that I truly have capital is tied up in this particular asset, and I need to take possession of it." So once you do then the tax bill becomes due. So I would say run some math, make sure that make sure that you that you're solid on your math before you do that because you've broken the chain and now those taxes are going to become due. But if you don't break the chain and you continue to do that, then you theoretically have the capability or the ability to essentially never have to pay those taxes. Wow,
2: that's an amazing set up for your kids or an wow. heir to just I, I'm speechless with that what a beautiful tool
3: yeah there's not I don't know any, any other I, I really don't know of any other way that really um, uh, is uh, as successful as being able to transfer wealth and we're you know statistically and if you look at the the gurus in the space the head economists out there they're saying we're living in right now the greatest transfer of wealth from generation to generation we're in it right now and will be for the next like 15 years so if you're not participating if you're not in this and I'm not I don't have any opportunities for you so I'm not pitching any opportunity I'm just saying if you're not if you're a passive investor and you're not Uh, involved in this and you're not educating yourself and you're not listening to opportunities that might be out there or talking to these ladies about what possible opportunities could i become involved in i think you're doing yourself and your family a disservice because we are living in such a time this is the greatest transfer of wealth from one generation to the next and if you're not doing everything that you can to try to shelter taxes i think you're doing yourself a disservice and you're not being the best steward of the resources that you have. So I'm a big, a big proponent of stewardship. And remember, this is not, uh, this is not illegal or shady or whatever. <laughs> this is, this is something that actually Uncle Sam encourages you to do because it promotes job growth, private capital investment in the U.S. economy. Oh. This is the main driver. In the U.S. economy, is the read is the injection of private equity into uh, deals because it promotes job growth and it stimulates the economy and it helps promote all of this. And so Uncle Sam says we want to help you uh, and we want to incentivize you to do this in the right way. And how they incentivize you to do that is they give you the benefit of not having to pay taxes if you follow some certain rules. So that's why. It's, it's a, it's an important lesson for all of us. And it doesn't matter whether what your socioeconomic background it is. It doesn't matter what part of the country you live in. It doesn't matter what race or creed or national origin or any of that stuff. This is totally apolitical. It is for everyone out there it needs to have this to understand how the system works and how to be able to take advantage of it for you and your family's future.
2: So I hear you talking about an intermediary and in all of this, and I know we're getting close on our time, but I, I really wanted to touch on this with our listeners based upon previous experience with investors, working with them with 1031s. Um, two questions kind of combined into each other is um, the intermediary obviously is nece- is a necessity due to the um, government regulations. Um, are they legal advisors? Should they... Should the investors be listening to those uh, suggestions by the intermediaries? Because you know people want to help each other. We're all passionate about you know things that we do. We sure. want to help. And then where do you come in all of this? When when do you get hired? And and if you can touch on that,
3: right? So great question. So most so I, I want to unfortunately let's strip away some of the myths right of qualified intermediaries. That many, many of these people are good-natured, hardworking individuals who do care about you, who care about you doing things the right way. In many instances, I would say the vast majority of instances, they are not attorneys. They are not tax attorneys. They are not CPAs. They are just individuals that understand the rules and regulations that the IRS has set up. And most of them are pushing volume. They're they, um, any given day, there's hundreds of thousands of these transactions that take place in the United States. So they don't have an in depth understanding of you or your personal circumstances or even your own motivations unless you share that with them. Mm-hmm. And don't feel bad if they forget about that, right? Because they have so many of these transactions that they're handling, they may not be hyper focused on what your objectives are. So, You should not expect your qualified intermediary necessarily to give you legal advice, and many of them will disclaim it. Mm -hmm. So if you see in the engagement agreement that you sign with your qualified intermediary, there will probably be caveats and disclaimers in that that say all we're doing is facilitating that escrow account, facilitating the processing of your 45-day uh, paperwork and maintaining that mm-hmm. files. So that in the unlikely event you get audited, they will produce that file and demonstrate to the IRS that they took possession of the money and not you, and that you designated mm-hmm. within that 45 day timeframe, and that they helped you redeploy that capital within that 180 day timeframe. Now, you may have a qualified intermediary that does that is a licensed lawyer, or they are paralegal, or they have some legal experience, mm-hmm. but they're probably not going to say that they're functioning in that capacity. They're wearing their qualified intermediary hat, so to speak, and then they take that hat off. And Mm -hmm. and if you hired them in a different capacity, they might represent you in that capacity. But in general, you shouldn't expect that. So where we as lawyers that are helping people um, redeploy that capital into other opportunities come into play is, We're either counsel already for a deal or an opportunity or a project that maybe is appealing to you. And that's how you might meet me or somebody like me in that. Um, And then we help essentially prepare the documents that both typically a lender, a senior lender or a lender's counsel, if there's debt that's associated with that potential replacement project is in place, you will you they will not only require a lawyer to be involved they will insist on it and they'll mm-hmm. they'll help facilitate the closing of that process. So our participation you could certainly hire us or a law firm like us to do your to, to help you with the, the legal process but you don't if you're just doing forward exchange into another forward exchange where you own the property, 100% yourself, you often don't need a lawyer uh, to, to do that. So you want to make sure that, you know, your costs and your fees associated with this are really manageable and that you're not like being lawyered or overfeed to death. So where we come into play is usually on the more complex structures where you have multiple co-owners participating at the same time or it's a large acquisition um, and that's where we, we help part- we help participate. And usually we're counsel for the deal, meaning we're trying to make sure that everybody at gets to the closing table and the redeployment of that capital, including yours on the 1031 side, is actually facilitated so that you can sleep easy at night. But that's typically the way in which we participate and when we participate. Excellent.
2: Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, one thing I just wanted to just shout out to make sure our listeners kind of really heard and listened, um, because I feel like it's something that I hear a lot and a lot of people wonder like, oh, well, why do you, you get so many tax breaks when you're involved in any real property or real estate? And it was something you mentioned, um, how if the government incentivizes it. And, you know, I feel that a lot of people don't realize that the government incentivizes it because if private capital isn't infused mm-hmm. into this industry and private capital isn't producing um, homes and places to live, mm-hmm. then that's going to fall on the government. And the government does not want to have to do that. The government wants mm-hmm. us to take hold and build the properties that we want to live in. And um, I feel a lot of people don't see that. A lot of people see it as it as, um, mm-hmm. you know, people with the money get the break, people with this get the break, but that's not the case. It's the people that have the funds Follow the tax code that is put in there to incentivize because the government wants you to put your money there. That's what the government wants you to do. That's why they incentivize these certain things, because if our private capital doesn't get put there, well, then the government has to be the one to do that. And uh, I just hope that that's something that the guests took out of that and really understand and realize that that's why it is so important for private capital to be in there. And that's the reason the government puts these um I don't want to say loopholes that that's why they put these in. That's why they incentivize it in these ways because they don't want to be responsible for it. They want us to do it and take hold. And that's, what's so great about the country we live in because we can profit from that. So um, totally,
3: like you totally said, you know, me,
0: it's the, it's one of a great way to just, you know, follow the tax codes.
3: <laughs> and the, our, our friends in Washington, regardless of what aisle they're on, they're all doing this. They're, yeah. They all take advantage of these incentives that are out there to stimulate the economy. They they're writing the laws in Washington in order to incentivize you, the retail investor or the 1031 investor, to participate, whether it's in the energy sector or green initiatives or affordable housing or uh, 1031. These are all examples of where our friends in Washington have incentivized us as the taxpayers to say, "Please get involved." Just like Crystal said, this is something that they want you to do. It is a political. It doesn't. It's not. It, it, it's not just for the rich. I couldn't have said it better. I don't want people to just think, "Well, the game is rigged because the corporations and the rich people take advantage of it." That that might. Uh, that might be historically true, but just because it's historically true, let's change the narrative. Let's get involved. Let's Normal people can get involved and they can invest and they can protect themselves and their family's future. Uh, and you don't have to just be a rich corporation or a family that's been here for generation after generation in order to take advantage of the incentives that are out there in the market
2: beautifully yes. said both of you I have to say and, and and that's why that's the that's why we started this podcast is because there's right. so many opportunities out there that if you just don't know you don't know and um, the, it, it's the education just providing the information for people to make informed choices and a lot of times it's just simply if you had a tax planner in your life, no matter what your income is, you could make so many other differences and take advantage of all of these opportunities because that's what they become is opportunities. You just have to know about them. So beautifully said. Um, that was so great. Both of you. Thank you so much.
0: Yes. Oh, Well, this has been so great. Dugan, um, if our listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, um, what's the best way for them to reach you?
3: Yeah. So thankfully, my parents gave me a very unique name, right? So, yeah. dude, how many lawyers out there and then the real estate <laughs> there are known as Nubian? So, you just you can Google through my name. You can find our firm. We're at Kelly Clark. That's K E L L E Y, Clark, C L A R K E.com. You can reach out to any of our team members, uh, schedule a free consultation. We would love to. Learn more about you and about what your desires or what your goals or aspirations are. And if there's a a way that we might be able to serve your legal needs, we'd be happy to do so. And if we're not the right fit for you, uh, regardless of what your issue is, we'll try to help you get to the right place where it might be a good Good fit. But uh, that's how you can get a hold of us. We'd be happy to chat with you.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And before we really wrap it up, we like to kind of end each podcast with like a super fun, thought provoking quote of the day. So Tamara, she has three cards. And um, if you could just choose the number one, two or three, and that's going to select which quote she reads. And then after um, she reads that quote, that's usually related in some ways to mindset. We just like to chat a little bit about it. Well, what it brings up for you and all that. So pick a number. Uh, one through three and so here
3: we go. Let's go two
1: number Dude. two so knowledge speaks but wisdom listens
3: mm. and it's
1: by Jimi wow. hendrix
3: mm. Mm. one of the greatest guitar players guitarists ever actually <laughs> like he has one favorite? of them.
1: we didn't did, we what? didn't even know that
3: <laughs> so all along so so for those of you that are music buffs all along the watchtower is one of my most favorite uh, songs. My wife's favorite uh, musician is Dave Matthews. And okay. the Dave Matthews band plays an amazing cover. And this is the little tangent, but an amazing cover of All Along the Watchtower. That's one of like his encores. I've seen him do this like, uh, I mean, dozens of times uh, in my lifetime. But uh, yeah, very, very important. Um, I think both listening um, I'm a big proponent of, of uh, be careful about what you say first. So listen first, try to really, truly listen. How many of us can say that when we're in conversations with people, there's not a lot of active listening that just feels like people are like holding their breath to get out, get, get out what they, what they want to say, as opposed to truly trying to understand their audience. So if we were all probably a little bit better listeners, uh, maybe the world will be a little bit kinder place, a little bit gentler place, maybe a little bit better place for all of us to live in with each other. So that's what I think of when I think of, of that quote. And and when you said Jimi Hendrix, I'm like, oh, well, of course.
0: I like that. I, I I like the way I like the way you took that, and I, it's so true about needing to listen, um, because a lot, of, like you said, a lot of people don't. Uh, that kind of, when it struck me. The first hearing that look, what knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. That kind of makes me realize that, like, in order to gain wisdom, you have to listen. You need to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. You need to go out there and listen, 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 learn, learn, learn. Um, and then once you gain all of that knowledge, you're gonna probably speak a little less because you're gonna have already heard all of it. You'll have less questions, all of that. But that's a that's the way that one hit me. That's that's a really good one. Yeah. And I do love
2: Dave Matthews, too, as well. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> well, it, well we um, find... Oh, go ahead, Tamara. No, go ahead, Candy. Go ahead, go ahead. When, when all, all I was thinking was that, you know, it's, we can obtain knowledge, but to really be able to transfer that knowledge and, and teach what we know, that's, the, that's where the wisdom comes in because then we know that we are really listening. You know, they're, they kind of go hand in hand. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know, I've, I've, I dabble with the guitar back and forth. And um, when I have been able to play some of um, Jimi Hendrix's little riffs, just like little three or four measures at a time, very complex. <laughs> it really, it, 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 it transports you spiritually. Totally. It does totally. totally. It's really amazing. So I just wanted to throw that in there.
1: Totally. <laughs>
3: Well, you're more talented than me. I, I, I,
2: Listen, I, I tried,
1: that a little bit.
3: Wow, well, I tried to fail, So I, I can't even do that. So maybe. So
1: you're a listener, listener to the music. I'm a
3: listener. Yep.
1: Well, I think it's a, uh, you know, it's time to wrap up. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. I think we could continue this conversation, almost even another episode. It's been so valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm so uh, thrilled. I think we're all thrilled to. Uh, Touched on this topic and really done a basic, but then also like a deep dive on some of the measures of this, the importance of it, and um, really to take advantage of it and get even more knowledgeable and and not fear it in any way. Actually embrace it and you know take it full throttle to all the places that can take you because it really can take you very far within this real estate investing world. That you know we love and we're a part of, and um, like we've touched upon, you know this is important for our listeners and to believe that there's the opportunity um, that they might not think is accessible and available to all of us. So um, I appreciate you being here, um, and uh, it's been a great it's been a great um, podcast today. So um, we just want to say thanks to our listeners for joining us at the round table today. If you want to learn more about us, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, um, or YouTube, or visit our website at therealestatewomen.com. Thank
2: you,
0: dude. Hi. Thank you. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only. We are not licensed professionals and do not give investment advice, tax advice, or other professional advice. Please consult a licensed professional before making any financial decisions.